0: Do you feel like an actor? Well, there are times when you have to guess at what the actor himself or the actress is going to. How long it's going to take to do a certain thing. So, in essence, you do the silent acting with your feet with your hands. You, the horse will winnie. That's enough for me, Jared. All right. Because you'll be busy, and I'll go into them. We come out of the music here with the clop, 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 clop. Right. What's on you got? The most terrifying have been the apparitions that belong to those who died a violent death. None of natural. crack of thunder. The actor must understand that he's looking at words, but he can't read the words. He must take these words and make them come alive. And the radio actor is just the most skillful of all the professions that relate to entertainment, who can take printed words and make them perform. They don't they sound no as dying. if they're being read. That's the skill a of the radio. Matter of true fact, it all happened thirty years ago. The horse is to, has too much presence. Off a little more. Okay, okay. Stand by. We'll do this all over again.
1: Thursday, January 10, 1974, the crew of Skylab 4, which had been orbiting the Earth for more than 50 days, was granted a day off. The week prior, during a televised news conference, Mission Commander Gerald Carr said he missed cold beer and football. That same day, the U.S. carried out three simultaneous nuclear explosions as part of Operation Arbor in Nevada. January 13th was Super Bowl 8 Sunday the defending champion Miami Dolphins faced off against the Minnesota Vikings at Rice Stadium in Houston. More than 70,000 were in attendance. That evening, Floyd Kalber signed on for NBC News with coverage of potential peace between Egypt and Israel, brokered by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger.
2: This is the NBC Sunday Night News, brought to you by Exxon.
3: Tonight, January 13th, Reported by
4: Floyd Cowber. Good evening. It now seems that Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has arranged a major breakthrough toward peace in the Middle East. Kissinger met first today for about 10 hours with the Israeli leaders getting their agreement to a plan for military disengagement. He is now in Egypt to present this plan to Egyptian leaders. A full report on all this now from NBC News correspondent Richard Valeriani.
1: Looking for a solution to the ongoing Middle East crisis, Kissinger spent 10 hours meeting with Israeli officials, hammering out a proposal for a peace settlement with Egypt. He next flew to Cairo to present the document to Anwar Sadat. After meeting with Sadat, the plan was to return to Tel Aviv with Sadat's version of the proposal for Israel's acceptance or rejection. This was good for President Nixon, who despite an 18-day birthday vacation in California and an insistence that he would leave the past behind him and focus on 1974, couldn't seem to shake Watergate, the energy crisis, and continued high inflation.
3: Afterwards, Foreign Minister Abe talked about the results of the meeting. Having heard and taken into account the reports that we heard from the secretary of his conversations in Egypt,
5: uh,
3: we decided to uh, authorize him to present to the Egyptian government um, an Israeli plan for the disengagement and separation of forces on the Egyptian front. At a working luncheon at Iban's home, discussions continued on the disengagement proposal. which calls for Israeli forces to withdraw to strategic passes in the Sinai, about 20 miles east of the canal, while the Egyptian force on the east bank is substantially reduced. The plan also envisions prompt action toward reopening the canal, which has been closed since the 1967 war. Tonight, a reception was arranged at Dayan's home in Tel Aviv so the talks could continue. After the diplomatic niceties were observed, Dayan and Elazar took Kissinger into a small private room to show him maps of their version of how the New Seas fire line should be drawn.
6: Kissinger then flew back to Egypt to present the Israeli proposal to President Sadat. Sadat is certain to suggest changes, so Kissinger will certainly be back in Israel tomorrow night or Tuesday. What happens here then will determine whether or not one more flight of the Kissinger Midi Shuttle will be necessary to nail down an agreement. Richard Valeriani, NBC News at Tel Aviv Airport.
4: If Egypt accepts this new Middle East Agreement, it will then go on to the Geneva Peace Conference table, where sources say that a final accord could be worked out in two or three weeks' time. Also in this evening's news, President Nixon is back in the White House. He returned there early this morning aboard a small government jet From his vacation in california and we'll have a report on the less than perfect opening of the largest airport in the united states
2: we're 300 feet below the illinois countryside in a mine run by a subsidiary of exxon all around us is america's most abundant fossil fuel coal plain old coal America has about one-third the entire world's supply. In terms of the energy it contains, our coal outweighs our oil and gas put together. And at a time when our country is concerned about its energy, that's a good thing to know. Well, there's a hitch. A lot of our nation's coal isn't being used. One reason is sulfur. Coal from most of the mines in our Appalachian and Midwestern states contains too much sulfur. Sulfur pollutes our air. Exxon and others are working on several processes to remove the sulfur. Once perfected, plants and factories will be able to burn more of the high sulfur coal that America has in abundance.
4: That'll be good for our country,
2: good for our air. Exxon, we'd like you to know.
4: President Nixon ended an 18-day stay in California. He flew back to Washington, landing at Andrews Air Force Base at 3 this morning. The president traveled in a Jetstar, a twin-engine plane like those used by corporation executives. With him were Mrs. Nixon, daughter Tricia, Bibi Rebozo, a doctor, an aide, two secret servicemen, and the president's pet dog. No helicopters, they used cars to get to the White House. Tom Broca reports on what the president faces next. On his
5: birthday in California last week, President Nixon told his daughter, Julie, that this will be a good year, a better year. But President Nixon returns to Washington facing some monumental problems. New stories about the existence of a military spy ring in the White House during his first term. The continuing energy crisis. Continuing inflation and forecast of a recession. The prominent role of the United States in the risky Middle East peace talks. And, of course, the impeachment investigation. There are signs from the White House that President Nixon plans to deal with one group of problems by offsetting them against the other. He will become visibly involved in energy, the economy, and the Middle East, while the White House attempts to portray the impeachment investigation as politically inspired by the President's traditional Democratic opponents. White House officials know that this will be a rough year for President Nixon, but they believe that he can survive. Tom Brokaw, NBC
4: News, at the White House. Senator Barry Goldwater, who two months ago said President Nixon's prestige was at an all-time low, said today that the president's ability to lead has improved. On the NBC News program Meets Press, Goldwater said that he would not suggest the president resign and allow Vice President Ford to become president.
0: Sometimes we get so engrossed in domestic matters in this country, we forget that the biggest job of the president is foreign policy. And in my travels, in other parts of the world very recently, uh, I find the world to have a very high opinion of uh, President Nixon and Mr. Kissinger. I think they sense in the United States the ability now, something we haven't shown, uh, at least during my experience, an ability to get peace in the Middle East, to begin to get the superpowers together. Now, if the President were to resign at this particular moment, I think it would cause an unusual upheaval in American politics. Uh, I can't believe, for example, that the Democratic Party would sit idly by and allow uh, Vice President Ford to become president. I think they might start an effort for a constitutional amendment whereby they'd call for a special election. And if this, anything like this came about, where we didn't have an orderly transition, at this time in the world's history, I think it could raise havoc with the whole world.
4: One line of speculation around Washington is that if the Republicans were to ask President Nixon to resign, it would be men such as Goldwater who would have to do the asking. His statement today that he would refuse to do that is considered to have strengthened the President's position. The
2: Rhine River. Its waters sweep below historic castles, through majestic gorges, and past an oil refinery run by an Exxon affiliate near Karlsruhe, Germany. The refinery needs three million gallons of water a day for cooling and processing. After the water is used, it flows into the Rhine. But before we let it out, it goes through three separate cleaning treatments. During the final treatment, special microorganisms attack the remaining pollutants. And only when we're satisfied with the cleanliness of the refinery water, we release it into the Rhine. Around the world, from Singapore to San Francisco, Exxon's refineries face different water treatment problems and different community environmental needs. Wherever the refinery, whatever the needs, Exxon is working to find solutions. Exxon, we'd like you to know.
4: In Cambodia, there was heavy fighting today on the northern edge of Phnom Penh. Government troops are trying to stop a communist force that threatens that capital city. The battle is in the marshland along the Tonle Sap River. Phil Brady has a report.
3: Every day now, more and more troops are boarding naval landing craft on the edge of the Tonle Sap River here in the heart of Phnom Penh. These men came from the best government outfits, the Marines, the Airborne, and the Special Forces. They're tough, and they're cocky too. They know they're only committed when the situation is bad. And on the far side of this river, only five miles north of Phnom Penh. The situation is just that. For several weeks now, the Khmer Rouge have methodically been advancing down the eastern bank of the Tonle Sap River. They've ground up every government unit that's tried to stop them. The Khmer Rouge are now close enough to Phnom Penh to shell it. In fact, almost all of the enemy rockets that have recently hit the city were fired from around here. Also, the communists have been shelling government units on Route 5, on this side of the river. Fishermen caught in the middle of this crossfire have all hoisted white flags over their boats, hoping this will protect them. So far, it has. The government's got plenty of ammunition, and it's using it. For days, this naval gunboat's been firing 105-millimeter shells point-blank into enemy positions on the eastern bank. But so far, the Khmer Rouge haven't watched. There have been no official figures on the overall government losses, but officers here said they've been light. Mostly, they admit, because their troops haven't been able to go on the attack. Cambodian officers here say that the Khmer Rouge drive down the east bank of the Tonle Sap River is part of their overall strategy of closing in on Phnom Penh from several different directions, then laying siege to it, and then trying to take the capital itself. Phil Brady, NBC News, five miles north of Phnom Penh on the Tonle Sap River.
4: Surgeons operated today on Bing Crosby. They took away a part of his left lung, including an abscess the size of a small orange. They said that it was a fungus infection and not cancer. The Miami Dolphins won the Super Bowl in decisive fashion today, defeating the Minnesota Vikings 24 to seven. The Dolphins were led by fullback Larry Zonka, quarterback Bob Greasy, and a defense that thoroughly contained Minnesota quarterback Fran Tarkenton. Here is a report.
6: The Dolphins started a drive right after the opening kickoff. Larry Zonka found a big hole and went 17 yards. A few plays later, Zonka carried over from the 5 to give the Dolphins their start toward a repeat title. The drive covered 62 yards in 10 plays. After the Vikings couldn't move the ball, Miami did. This time, Bob Greasy passed from the 15 to Marlon Briscoe on the 1. Two plays later, Jim Cook took it over from the 1. The point was good, and it gave Miami a 14-0 first-quarter lead. After a Dolphins field goal, the Vikings started their first move. Fran Tarkenton hit John Gilliam, who found an opening in the otherwise tough Miami defense. He was pulled down on the 15, the Vikings' longest gain of the day. But the Dolphins tightened. Oscar Reed's desperation try for a needed first down was stopped. Taking a 17-0 lead into the second half, the Dolphins added some more. Greasy hit Paul Warfield, who was a doubtful participant, but who made a diving catch on the 10. A few plays later, it was Zonka again, this time from the two. Zonka carried in, and he got a total of 145 yards for a Super Bowl record. The Vikings finally scored at the beginning of the final period. Tarkenton carried over on a keeper. That made it 24-7. The Vikings' chance to close the margin was stopped when Tarkenton's pass was intercepted by Miami's Curtis Johnson on the one. That ended the game as far as the Vikings were concerned. Miami coach Don Shula personally greeted each of his players as they came off the field in the final seconds with their second consecutive Super Bowl win. The 24-7 final score left no doubt that the Dolphins are the best team in pro football. Ted Elbert, NBC News.
4: Elmer Wayne Henley goes on trial for murder tomorrow in Houston. He's one of the teenagers who led police to burial sites from which they recovered the bodies of 27 young boys. And Byron DeLay Beckwith, the man twice tried, but never convicted in the Medgar Evers case. He goes on trial in New Orleans tomorrow, accused of carrying a ticking time bomb into that city. Those are two of the stories coming up in the week ahead, and here are some others.
2: The Joint Committee of Congress begins hearings tomorrow on petroleum facts and figures. It's the first of four announced congressional hearings on the energy crisis. Many congressmen return to Washington after the holiday recess with the views of their constituents still ringing in their ears. The voters back home aren't sure about the energy crisis, whether it exists at all, and Congress wants to find out what it's all about.
6: The Western European governments will be conferring this week about President Nixon's invitation for a joint meeting with the United States to discuss the energy crisis. They're expected to accept but not without Britain and France especially posing conditions designed to protect their good relations with the Arab oil producers.
4: Israeli and Egyptian negotiators sit down at the conference table in Geneva again this week in an effort to work out an agreement on the separation of the two armies now facing each other in the Sinai. The Israelis are hopeful of success following the visit of Secretary of State Kissinger this weekend. On Tuesday in Washington, the new fuel allocation regulations are to be issued. A source with access to the rules said they do not include gasoline rationing. Steady as she goes.
2: Captain Robin Rowlands is an Exxon tanker captain, but right now he's on dry land. This room is a mock up of a super tanker bridge, a training device that teaches safe sea maneuvers. You see, before many of our veteran captains move up to super tankers, we send them to schools like this one in Delft, Holland, and like this one in Grenoble, France. Here, miniature supertankers give our captains experience in dockings and moorings. Most captains are surprised. When they go into the boat, it doesn't handle like a little boat. It handles like a big ship. You do save five dockings a day. Now that's equal to three trips to the Persian Gulf and back. If I had my way, every captain in the bloody world should go through it. Exxon supports this training because we know one of the best ways to run a safe ship is to start with a safe captain, like Robin Rollins. Exxon, we'd like you to
4: know. Texas got a new airport today, the world's largest, they call it. It was over five years in building, and it was to have opened in October, but they didn't make it. They weren't quite ready today either, but they opened anyway, and George Lewis was there.
7: The new airport is bigger than Manhattan Island, and it comes complete with some Texas-sized headaches. The opening was supposed to have marked the beginning of a rapid expansion in air service to Dallas and Fort Worth, but so far it has gone the other way because of the fuel shortage. Fourteen flights were eliminated when the airlines moved in here. Airport officials predicted some confusion on the first day of operations, but it was worse than they had expected. Flights were delayed, passengers got lost and missed their connections, and airport personnel not used to working here couldn't help very much. We
6: didn't wait here any
0: longer. Oh! Why why don't they get that worn out?
7: Well, we're trying, see? Then there was the problem of baggage. In the Braniff terminal, the conveyors weren't delivering baggage, they were eating it. Some passengers who had to wait hours for their bags We're not very impressed. I think it'd be a fine if They could get it working. Very inconvenient
5: for us. I don't think we'll ever again come through
7: this airport. First of all, we've been an hour and a half waiting on our baggage. We left Corpus Christi this morning. At 8 o'clock, we could have driven and been here faster. The new airport is so huge, passengers have to ride automated trains from one place to another. But the system has been plagued with technical troubles, which may take seven months to fix. The ride costs 25 cents. Many people think it should be free. At least it's easy to get change from a machine, but for every dollar the passengers put in, they only get back 95 cents. Perhaps the ultimate frustration was reserved for people who wanted to call friends and relatives to say they'd run into trouble at the new airport. It uh, costs a quarter to call anywhere from here. So the airport of tomorrow has the prices of tomorrow. George Lewis, NBC News, at the Dallas-Fort Worth Regional Airport.
4: That's the news for this Sunday evening. I'm Floyd Calder. Good night for NBC News.
2: Few Americans have ever seen a really big oil tanker called a super tanker They are the most economical way to move oil across water. Many industrial countries are taking advantage of supertankers, but not the United States. America does not have a single oil terminal in a port where the water is deep enough to handle a supertanker. But here's a solution to the problem. That buoy is a deep water berth two miles from shore. It's a special kind developed by Exxon. A tanker ties up to it, pumps its cargo to a pipeline buried in the sea floor, And the line takes the oil to storage tanks, which may be miles inland. This deep water berth is located off the coast of Okinawa. There are 100 others similar to it used by oil companies around the world. And they make a lot of sense. Because when you can't take the tanker to the port, they let you take the port to the tanker. Exxon, we'd like you to know. This has been the NBC Sunday Night News. Brought to you by Exxon.